You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 473 of this podcast. Today is September 25th. 2022, also a Sunday. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about Paul, a biography by N.T. Wright. And having just finished that yesterday, I've got some thoughts. But first of all, I'd like to delve into a link and the attendant report sent to me by Alex Cassetta this morning. The link itself, the gateway (laughs) drug, if you will, was an article at ChristianityToday.com from September 19th titled Top Five Heresies Among American Evangelicals by Stephanie McDade. And this article uh, has to do with the State of Theology report, the most recent State of Theology report, which just was released on Monday by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research, some highlights which Christianity Today presents. One, there has been a sharp increase among evangelicals with regards to agreement with the statement, the Bible is not literally true. Evangelicals in 2016 responded 17% in agreement 2018, 23% in agreement. 2020, a dip to 15%. And then in 2022, we've boomeranged in some measure to 26%. So just over a quarter of American evangelicals agree with the statement, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. Fully a quarter of American evangelicals do not believe the Bible is literally true. That is an alarming percentage. One in four don't believe the Bible is literally true. Now, of course, as we've talked about before, there's a lot of things we can mean by literally true. But in my experience, what people typically mean when they say, I don't believe it's literally true, is they don't believe the things recorded as having happened actually happened. They think these are fables, in a sense. These are made-up stories. These are helpful psychologically. And what we mean by psychologically in the modern era is emotionally. They feel good. I feel good when I read these things. They make me a better person. There are important morals and lessons and ethics here. But I don't believe these actually happened. So from Genesis... Revelation, I don't believe what's being described here actually happened or is happening or will happen. It's just a way of trying to explain or give a metaphor for the human soul or the human mind or the human heart. And uh, that's concerning. That's very concerning. You might recognize that approach from Jordan Peterson, and it is not good. This is not a good approach to reading your Bible to say, ah, yes, these are helpful stories, 
but not true. Uh, not, not a good approach. It's not either or, by the way. We don't have to believe that either these things really happened, really truly happened, or on the other hand, these things tell us something about what's going on in the deep recesses of our hearts and our minds and our souls. The battle for our souls is not just a metaphor to Christians, but there are apparently a lot of Christians who think they are Christians, and yet they don't actually believe God's word is true, and that's very, very concerning. Similarly, and this all follows, really, if you don't believe the Bible is literally true, the other statistics that follow here in the State of Theology report from Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research will be higher. (laughs) They will be higher. So statement number one highlighted in this Christianity Today article, Top 5 Heresies, Jesus isn't the only way to God. More than half, more than half of self-professing, self-identifying evangelical respondents affirmed the following statement, quote, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, up from 42% in 2020. God accepts faiths outside of Christianity, 56% of self-professed, self-identifying evangelicals said, yes, that's very alarming. That's very alarming. If you thought (laughs) 26%, saying the Bible's not literally true was concerning. Now grapple with the idea that 30% over and above that believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. That's very, very concerning. Statement number two, Jesus is a created being. Percentage of evangelicals who agree Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God, 73%. Now, 2022, you might think, man, what was it? two years ago, four years ago, six years ago. It's been high for a bit. 2020, the number dipped to 66%. Still ridiculously high. Before that, 2018, 78%. So it's been higher in the past six years. 2018, 78%. So over three quarters of evangelicals believed that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. That is heresy. Jesus is not created. He's begotten. And right here, there's a lot of room that might be left potentially for what people think they mean by created and what they think begotten means. But this is an indictment on the state of Christian teaching and Christian discipleship in the U.S. that over three quarters of self-professing evangelicals would read only begotten son as created being. This is an ancient heresy. This is (laughs) Arianism, uh, essentially. Uh, Popular heresy from the 4th century AD. This is Arianism, and it is heretical. Uh, The Council of Nicaea produced the Nicene Creed, which in part makes the statement, makes the claim very, very clearly Jesus was not made. He was not created. He was eternally begotten, one in being, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. 
This is Trinitarianism 101, and it is not known to the majority, vast majority, of evangelicals in America. That is very concerning. Uh, Point number three, statement number three, Jesus is not God. Jesus is not God. And this goes with and goes alongside the claim that Jesus is a created being. It follows from that. If you don't believe that he is co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, it is not hard to say, well, Jesus is not really fully God. So the statement, and I quote, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. What percentage of American evangelicals do you think agree with that statement? 2018, the percentage was 30%. 2020, 30%. 2022, 43%. Nearly half. We are approaching at an alarming pace, half of evangelicals not believing that Jesus is God, was God, will forever be God. No, Jesus was a great teacher. Well, I guess it makes sense if you believe he was a created being and also not the only way to God and also that the Bible is not literally true. The Holy Spirit is not a personal being. 60% of the evangelical survey respondents, quote, had some confusion about its third member, believing that the Holy Spirit is a force but is not a personal being, end quote. That is also alarming. This is Trinitarianism 101. The Holy Spirit being a person is kind of a big deal. But if you don't believe that Jesus is fully God, co-eternal with the Father, then I suppose it follows that you're not going to think the Holy Spirit is a person. Uh, We should not be getting our theology from Star Wars, but it would seem a lot of folk are more familiar with the concepts communicated in Star Wars than they are with what their Bibles say, even when they claim to be evangelical Christians. So lots of work needs to be done there to correct the error and the false teaching. Number five, last but not least, among the top five heresies which American evangelicals subscribe to at an alarming rate, humans aren't sinful by nature. So the statement was made and then respondents were asked to agree or disagree with it. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. U.S. adults generally, 2016, 2018, 2020, 2022, agreed with that statement. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 65%, 66%, 65%, 66%, staying fairly tight at two-thirds. Two-thirds of Americans agree with that statement that most people are inherently good but everyone sends a little bit. Evangelicals, you would think, would be in much better shape. Isn't that the premise of evangelism? Isn't that the premise of our proclaiming the Messiah? As it turns out, evangelicals are not a whole lot better than the mainstream of American society. 2016, 54% agreed. 2018, 52% agreed. 2020, These numbers dipped to 46%, which is still way too high. And 2022, we have boomeranged or rebounded to 57%. So quickly, evangelicals in America 
are approaching the stats for America more broadly, which is to say, increasingly, American evangelicals are being conformed to the pattern of this world, and it's getting harder and harder to differentiate American evangelicals from U.S. adults of every religion or no religion whatsoever. So I checked out the link. You can find it at Christianity Today in the article by Stephanie McDade. But I checked out the State of Theology report at thestateoftheology.com. And there are some additional interesting questions and graphs to look at. So for instance, statement number four, and this is another big one. Does God change? So the statement U.S. adults were asked to agree with or disagree with was that God learns and adapts to different circumstances. God learns and adapts. He's growing, right? He is not so much a divine being as he is a divine becoming. (laughs) He is maturing. He's learning from his mistakes in some sense, or he's finding out new things. He's just along for the ride with the rest of us. Well, that's a very, very concerning attitude to have towards God. That's a very concerning way to relate to God. And what percentage of American adults do you think agree with that statement? As it turns out, 51%. So just a little bit over half agree with the statement, God learns and adapts to different circumstances. 32%, so one-third, disagree. So 32% say, no, God doesn't learn or adapt. God is God. God knows everything. God is omniscient. Only a third of U.S. adults disagreed with that statement. And the characteristic or attribute of God, which this really gets at, is God's immutability. God does not change. He cannot change. He does not change. Ligonier helpfully includes some references, which you should definitely look up and you should believe are absolutely true. If you're a Christian, this is literally true. Isaiah 46.10, Malachi 3.6, James 1.17, 1 John 3.20. But surely, surely U.S. evangelicals are better, right? Surely we are better off than the general population of U.S. adults, whether they are in church, whether they are sitting under preaching, whether they are reading their Bibles. Surely U.S. evangelicals are much better off As it turns out, not much better off, actually. 43% disagreed with the statement as compared with 32% of the U.S. adult population surveyed. 48% agree. 48% agree. And, of course, 48 plus 43 doesn't add up to 100. So there's a little bit of a gap here where apparently some uh, 10% or so, shrug and say, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if God learns and adapts to different circumstances. But 48% compared with 51, that's a 3% within the margin of error difference between U.S. evangelicals and U.S. adults more generally. Very, very concerning. This is absolutely clear in Scripture, cover to cover, and yet this is to say we don't take our Bible seriously Enough, as Martin Lloyd-Jones would say. That is the trouble with our age. We are very superficial, and we set the bar extremely low when it comes to doctrinal purity and what the church actually expects Christians to know and believe and understand. Next question, 
Are we born innocent? Everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Statement number 15 says, U.S. adult finding 71% agree, 21% disagree. Everyone is born innocent. 21% disagree with that statement. 71% agree. Once again, you've got roughly 10% who are just not sure. They just are not sure where they land on that. But 71% say, yeah, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Among U.S. evangelicals, the numbers are not much better. 32% disagree compared with 21% of the U.S. population generally. 65% nevertheless agree. This really gets at the idea that human beings are inherently good. We are inherently good, basically good, fundamentally good, even if we sin a little bit. All of us are inherently good. Now, there's some interesting things you could do with this information or some interesting qualifying questions one might ask. For instance, you could get at what Augustine says about good and evil, where Augustine says that evil is just the diminution of good. So to the extent that something is evil, we say, It is a lessening of the good, but evil is not a self-existent thing. We don't believe in an eternal dualism of good and evil where they're co-eternal. We believe in the co-eternality of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but we do not believe that evil is a thing created. We believe evil, as Augustine said, is a diminution of the good. Everything God made originally in Genesis, literally, really, 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 was good and then the fall, and then sin. And you say, well, then God created sin. And I say, no, God created us with the ability to make choices. And that included, but was not limited to the command, don't eat the fruit of this one particular tree that's in the garden. It is not for you to eat. He created us with the capacity to sin. That does not mean that it's his fault. Very, very important to realize if you're going to say, I'm a Christian, that's what Christians believe. If you don't believe that, you need to go back to the drawing board. You need to get back into your Bible. You need to be studying more and diligently and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is the exact kind of stuff that you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind with regards to. Uh, Also too, let's look at attitudes towards the Bible. Christianity Today delved into that a little bit, but again, this idea that the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful statements or helpful accounts of ancient myths, uh, but is not literally true. Statement number 16. Check out Proverbs 30, verse 5, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. God has given us a clear and sufficient and inerrant communication about himself in his word. If you say, well, mankind is not capable of knowing, the logical response would be God is capable of communicating himself clearly. God is capable of revealing himself to mankind to the extent that he wants to reveal himself. God is capable of giving us the capacity to understand what he's communicated about himself. So you've got to flip this around. Instead of saying, oh, well, we can't, we can't, we can't, which is always ironic when the same folks who are saying, oh, we can't understand God, very often have no problem whatsoever (laughs) with imagining themselves playing God. (laughs) 
which I think is what it's more about. But 2014, 41% agreed with this statement. 2016, we see a 3% rise to 44% among U.S. adults generally. 2018, we see another 3% rise to 47%. 2020, the rate of increase slowed to 48%, I think for obvious reasons, where there was a lot of people who were giving a little bit of pause. If there was a rate of increase, I would say it was due to folks sharing these attitudes and ideas freely, but you have a slowing of the rate of increase. I think as more people are a little bit more hesitant to say, oh yeah, the Bible's not literally true. It's just got some helpful stories that we can use to make social, political, and cultural points. Then 2022. From 2020 to 2022, we've made up for lost time, and we see a 5% increase. And that averages out. That averages out to 1.5% year-over-year increase since 2014 for the past eight years. A lot has been going on that is pushing us in that direction, but Christians need to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, even though it looks like we are. Now, gender identity is one subset. Gender identity is a matter of choice. Statement number 27. Among U.S. adults, 2016, 2018, 2020, that number has stayed fairly flat at 38%. So a little bit over one-third of U.S. adults say it's a matter of choice. Now, I would say, yes, but what do we mean by that? You have a choice to identify as the opposite gender, sure, but it's not a valid choice. It's not a moral choice in the sense that it's good for you to do or it's neutral. It's an immoral choice if you are rebelling against God having made you the gender that you are. If you're discontent with that and you say, oh no, I want to be the other. I want to be the opposite. Just to be contrary, just to try and assert a godlike uh, ability to self-actualize, to be whatever you want to be, be whoever you want to be, recreate yourself any way you want to recreate yourself. There's a 4% increase, and that has to be related to something here in 2022. There's a 4% increase on a stat that has been flat since 2016. That's interesting to me. The Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. Statement number 28, very similar. 2016, 42% agreed. 2018, 44%. 2020, the number dips to 40%. 2022, we slingshotted and made up for lost time to 46%. So some odd things are happening with regards to these stats. Definitely go and check out the full report at thestateoftheology.com. A quick word too on something we've got going on at our local church, Summit View Community Church in Evans, Colorado. We are, as of the first week of October, going to be starting a series of biblical training groups and classes. Biblicaltraining.org is the website. You can go check it out. Totally free seminary-level classes on a wide range of of questions related to Christian theology, Christian faith, biblicality, and we are going to be going through these classes through the next several years, I would say. Lord willing, if the Lord wills and the creek don't rise, as they say, my wife and I are going to be hosting one in our home Friday nights, 
7 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. A Guide to Christian Theology, 40 sessions long. There's a lot here. Taught by Dr. Jerry Brashears from Western Seminary. The summary is an overview of what Christians believe presented in clear, easy-to-understand terms. Understand the core topics of systematic theology from what we know about God to the future state of humankind. Special emphasis is given to such topics as Christ, salvation, the church, and the future. And there's a lot here that is really, really good stuff that apparently we do need to delve into. Nobody's born knowing these things in the way that Christians are called to know these things. That's why God gave us his word. There is such a thing as general revelation. The general truth about God is made evident in creation, but we have his word as special revelation. This is part of his grace towards us, that he's revealed who he is for our good, for our benefit. But we're going to be going from October 7th to July 28th. Again, Lord willing, we live and do this or that, but Friday evenings, average total time, total length of our sessions I'm estimating will be about an hour and 10 minutes. Some will go a little bit longer because the lectures are longer, but breaking for Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's, we should be on track to finish up July 28th, I do believe. Other things will come up, no doubt, but very excited about that, not least because of looking at this report from ChristianityToday.com or the distilled highlights from the report not least because of having looked at thestateoftheology.com with their 2022 report. But as to the main topic, which is not those things, but it is related to those things, yesterday I finished up Paul, a biography by N.T. Wright. And I want to talk about it. I want to tell you about it and share some observations, some thoughts, what I liked, and uh, some of the controversy surrounding N.T. Wright and his perspective on Paul. I won't say it's the new perspective on Paul, but I will say it is considered to be part of the new perspective on Paul by many. First of all, the book summary from goodreads.com, and I quote, In this definitive biography, renowned Bible scholar, Anglican bishop, and best-selling author N.T. Wright offers a radical look at the Apostle Paul, illuminating the humanity and remarkable achievements of this intellectual who invented Christian theology, transforming a faith and changing the world. For centuries, Paul, the apostle, who saw the light on the road to Damascus and made a miraculous conversion from zealous Pharisee persecutor to devoted follower of Christ, has been one of the church's most widely cited saints. While his influence on Christianity has been profound, N.T. Wright argues that Bible scholars and pastors have focused so much on Paul's letters and theology that they have too often overlooked the essence of the man's life and the extreme unlikelihood of what he achieved. To Wright, quote, the problem is that Paul is central to any understanding of earliest Christianity, yet Paul was a Jew. For many generations, Christians of all kinds have struggled to put this together, end quote. Wright contends that our knowledge of Paul and appreciation for his legacy cannot be complete without an understanding of his Jewish heritage, giving us a thoughtful, in-depth exploration of the human and intellectual drama that shaped Paul. Wright provides a greater clarity of the apostles' writings, thoughts, and ideas, and helps us see them 
in a fresh, innovative way. Paul is a compelling modern biography that reveals the Apostles' greater role in Christian history as an inventor of new paradigms for how we understand Jesus and what he accomplished and celebrates his stature as one of the most effective and influential intellectuals in human history. The author summary, also from goodreads.com, says this with regards to N.T. Wright, that he is the former Bishop of Durham in the Church of England from 2003 to 2010, and one of the world's leading Bible scholars. He is now serving as the Chair of New Testament and Early Christianity at the School of Divinity at the University of St. Andrews. He has been featured on ABC News, Dateline NBC, The Colbert Report, and Fresh Air. And he has taught New Testament studies at Cambridge, McGill, and Oxford universities. Wright is the award-winning author of Surprised by Hope, Simply Christian, The Last Word, The Challenge of Jesus, The Meaning of Jesus, co-authored with Marcus Borg, as well as the much-heralded series Christian Origins and The Question of God. He also publishes under Tom Wright. So what is the controversy, right? Well, first off, let me just say, with regards to the biography itself, I don't see the fuss. I, I, don't, see, <laughs> I don't see what the, all the fuss is about. I, the biography itself is a good biography, and I've read a fair number. Some are dry. Some are really exciting. Some are very interesting. Some have great facts or observations, but they're just not very well communicated, and it's hard to stay interested, even if you were interested in the person themselves. Uh, some are very well-written, but not very substantive. And in my view, N.T. Wright's biography of the Apostle Paul is interesting in its facts, in its observations, in what is pulled out as being relevant to the kind of life Paul lived or the way he may have viewed himself based on his upbringing, where he was from, when he was from that place, what was going on in the broader world leading up to the time he was born and raised in Tarsus, and then also, too, through his ministry, what is going on with Saul of Tarsus, who then becomes the Apostle Paul as we know him. What is going on with him, and how should we understand these little bits and pieces, these little personal notes and hints throughout the New Testament? Lots of really good stuff is pulled in to make this biography and make this portrait of sorts of the man by N.T. Wright. Also, he communicates it in a way that is easy to follow, is clear, is honest, where he does speculate or where there is a debate or a disagreement as to something that's kind of open-ended and we don't know for sure what to read into this gap here or that gap there. He's, in my view, very honest and upfront to say, there's a debate, there's a discussion. Some people think this, some people think that. I personally favor such and such an explanation because this, 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 and here's my reasoning. And he shows his work, and I really appreciate that because not everybody not, not everybody does that. The controversy surrounding N.T. Wright and the new perspective on Paul precedes this biography. So the new perspective on Paul, as it has been told to me, and I still need to do more research on it, 
to understand it better, the controversy with the new perspective on Paul comes down to justification. Are we justified by grace through faith, period, God's grace in relation to our faith in Christ as Savior, as atoning, sacrifice, paying the penalty for our sins? Is that how we are justified through Christ's work on the cross, living a sinless life, dying a death in our place, paying the penalty we could not have afforded to pay on our own for our own sins that separate us from a holy and righteous God? Is that how we're justified? Or or is it that plus also our works? As I understand it, that is the question. That is the controversy. And that's a big one. There is a huge difference. There's all the difference in the world. There's all the difference between being a heretic, being a worker of lawlessness, being self-righteous, and being someone to whom we can expect Christ to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into your place of rest. If we think we are saved by our works, we are lost. If, however, it's a little more complicated, I think what you could potentially have in right and others is talking past each other. And this does happen. It doesn't always happen where it's said to happen because sometimes people will say, oh, I think you're misunderstanding me. And you're not misunderstanding me. (laughs) Uh, Actually, (laughs) like you understand, you disagree. Sometimes people are not talking past each other, but one person doesn't like the conclusions come to. And so they say, oh, no, you must not be understanding me. It's like, no, they, they might know precisely what you meant. And they might know what you meant better even than you did because there were implications that you're not willing to admit to what it is that you believe. But that holds true on all sides of this. For one thing, if it's our works that save us, then what is the need for Christ, right? On another hand, if we can say we have faith without works, James, the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus, writes in the New Testament, which is scripture, it's in my Bible, although if memory serves, Martin Luther wasn't so happy about that. He wasn't so sure James should be in the New Testament. (laughs) But James says faith without works is dead. So it's not the works themselves which are primary or which save us or which justify us, but the orthodox position of Christians down through the centuries, certainly my view, my position is if you say you have faith, but you have no works, no good works. What Jesus says about discerning false teachers applies also to false believers, people who think they believe, but they don't really believe. By their fruits, you will know them. A good tree does not bear bad fruit. A bad tree does not bear good fruit. So if someone says, I believe, help me with my unbelief, that deserves another category because essentially the faith is going to precede the works. But if the faith is not there, neither will the works be there. But it gets complicated because you can have people who don't actually have faith in Christ. Their faith is in themselves and their ability to do good works, to be morally perfect, to be spiritually pure, to be inherently good. And if that's their view, then what need do they have 
for a Savior. They don't need saved from anything. They've got this. Why then did Christ come? But if someone will say we're going to break out faith and works in such a way that there's an initial justification, kind of a trial period of sorts, you're going to get a shot at being saved. Because by grace through faith, you're justified to now try to maintain your salvation on good works. What kind of salvation is that? Versus, by God's grace, you believe in the Son, the only begotten Son of the Father, not created, co-eternal. In the beginning was the Word, as John says. By God's grace, you believe, you have faith. And your faith is credited to you as righteousness. But that righteousness, that faith alone, is not going to be alone. And this is complicated, and it's hard to understand. But we have to work at it. We have to not be lazy. We have to pay attention. We have to not grow dull of hearing, as Paul says in one point. We have to pay attention. We have to be diligent. We have to meditate on these things. Meditate Originally, being a word picture, which you might imagine a lion gnawing on a bone to evoke. Meditation being, this is the claim, and if you think you have to be able to understand it in 30 seconds, I would say you've been conformed to the pattern of this world. You need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind in Christ Jesus. This is not a 30 seconds and you got it sort of a thing, which is to say a couple things. One, you get to 31 seconds and you still don't have it, don't lose heart. You weren't supposed to have that all figured out in 30 seconds. By God's grace, if you do, wonderful. We're very happy for you. Now, please don't tell us all about it because we're going to be jealous. But persevere, endure, dig in. And if you don't, well, then that is a statement on how important these things are to you. If you don't, how then can you say you have faith? So it's, it's complicated. And yet, this is why we are called to have a childlike faith. Because in some measure, I'm reminded of a hymn that the Mullet family used to sing. And I think they still do, to be clear. But I don't still attend Mullet family reunions since my grandparents passed away. I Know Whom I Have Believed, published 1883 by Daniel W. Whittle, who was associated with... Dwight L. Moody, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own, but I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart, but I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith in him. But I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I know not what of good or ill may be reserved for me, of weary ways or golden days, before his face I see. But I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. 
I know not when my Lord may come, at night or noonday fair, nor if I walk the vale with him or meet him in the air, but I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. So there's this great, beautiful, evocative song. I know not how. I know not why. I know not what. I know not when. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. The object of our faith is not the faith itself, right? I believe in my ability to believe. And the object of our faith is not the subsequent works which correspond to said faith. I believe in my ability to perform. I believe in my ability to achieve. I believe in my ability to be able. No, no. I know whom I have believed. The object of our faith is Christ and what Christ did and is doing and will do, that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. That's a huge, huge difference. And again, to be very, very clear, I'm not trying to be nebulous and I'm not trying to be uh, (laughs) vague with regards to the new perspective on Paul or N.T. Wright, but let me just be very, very clear. I believe our justification is in what Christ did and is doing and will do, period, by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And yet, if that is really our faith, it will not be alone. Admittedly, it's complicated. There's a lot to unpack. And yet, we have to dig in. We have to unpack it. I would recommend N.T. Wright's biography of Paul. In my reading of it, if he's controversial for other things that I don't fully understand, maybe I need to dig in and read up on those things to know better what his position is. If he's a heretic, as some say, well then, I don't want to be recommending a heretic and leading people astray. So watch out for that. But I do want to read, I do plan to read what the Apostle Paul really said by N.T. Wright. And for that matter, I would recommend if you're curious about these things, check out a really great discussion back and forth from eight years ago, I believe it was, between N.T. Wright and James R. White with regards to justification in the person of Christ. You can check out the YouTube video for that. I think it's an hour and a half or so long, but a really great back and forth discussion in which some important distinctions are made, some pushback is given uh, with regards to certain claims, and if nothing else, it gives you a good primer into the debate. What is being discussed here. Very similar to the councils, which have been called down through the centuries. In the first five centuries, there were several challenges to sound doctrine, which needed to be faced and confronted. And that's where we got the creeds. That's where we got the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, the Athanasian Creed. Read up on those, because it's not unimportant. If we think in our day that these things are trivial or unimportant, that says a great deal more about us than it does about the things themselves. And we sorely need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus. I think one of the ways uh, you might get interested in reading the New Testament, reading your Bible, is by realizing and remembering that these were men 
I think a good biography of the Apostle Paul is helpful. A modern biography in the way that we've come to expect learning about people and reading about important figures from history. Uh, I think it's helpful for me personally, but I also think that with regards to safeguarding ourselves against wrong belief, wrong thinking, wrong work, wrong attitudes towards the work and God's grace, you might benefit from reading N.T. Wright's biography of Paul. If you have a different view on it, let me know. If you've got some comments, questions, objections, complaints, concerns, what have you, hit me up, email me at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. It is a Sunday morning after all. Time to get ready for church and take my family to church as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.